Life is going to give you challenges, struggles. It's going to force you to face your fears. Even though these may feel like your worst enemy, in truth, these are actually your greatest allies. My name is Lance Isios. Welcome to the University of Adversity. What's up, everybody? I'm super excited for this episode today. I've been waiting for this one for a while. We have a masterclass on trauma, dreams, and how to navigate this crazy world. One of the smartest dudes I know, Eric Godsey, is joining us today. He was on the show back in 2019 when we first started episode 46. And now here we are, nearing 350 episodes. He's back. Enjoy the episode. Eric Godsey, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, here we go, ladies and gentlemen. Eric Godsey is back on the show. Dude, last time we chatted, it was episode 46. This was back in, I think I went and looked, it was May 2019. Wow. <laughs> A lot has changed. This episode is going to be, it's veering towards 350 now. I'm not sure the exact. Wow, congratulations. Episode. Thanks, man. So there's been a lot, a lot of growth. A lot has happened. Wow. And... Dude, you've been somebody that, you know, obviously being in the fit for service community and even before that and during and after it's been some, you've been somebody that I have learned a lot from, you know, it's always been your way of explaining things, articulating things that really landed for me. And it's been a really interesting journey learning from, you know, all the coaches from Aubrey, Kyle, yourself, Caitlin, and you're somebody that's always stood out in the area where articulating what trauma and mm. the importance of what that really is. And, you know, a lot of the listeners of this show are sort of where I was at when I started kind of the beginning of the personal growth, kind of discovering right. like, like, who is this? Like, what are these words? And, you know, a lot of people don't have the vocabulary or they don't have an understanding and they're kind of brand new to all this. Yeah. So what better person than for you to come on, brother? So I, yeah. I would love to kick this off kind of like a trauma masterclass. Mm. This has been something that's been sitting with me that we spoke about before getting on before you hit record that I've, I've been felt called to bring you on. And what better time than now when we're living in this traumatized world? So yeah. for those that may be new to this, you know, they've heard the words, they've, you know, <laughs> they've, you know, heard the buzzwords online or whatever. But if you had to explain what trauma is, how would you explain it? So the first thing that comes to mind is feeling called to articulate that if you feel like you might have significant trauma and most of us have a really clear intuition about whether or not that we do, I want to offer a trigger warning. You know, that if you're going to listen to this, I invite you to not be on a drive and to be somewhere where if you feel something starting to activate inside of you, you can go be somewhere that feels safe. Because if you articulate this stuff well, it might help you remember and that that can be destabilizing. So that's the first thing that I want to articulate. And because I love stories so much, I think it's important to start with a story. So my call to learn psychology came from being born from a mother who had severe depression. And as a kid, 
you know, in the ways that we do, I saw it as my fault that she was depressed and my responsibility to heal her depression. And that created a lifetime interest in psychology. And I went to school and got a bachelor's of science in cognitive psychology. And I studied cognitive behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy pretty deeply. And the research at that time, this is about 10 years ago, was that cognitive behavioral therapy was the most scientifically supported effective intervention for treating depression. It was so effective that this man named David Burns wrote a book called Feeling Good <clears throat> that taught how to do cognitive behavioral therapy on yourself. And they did a study where they tested people either read that book and did the exercises or they got classical therapy from someone and that the group that read the book had more significant decreases in depressive symptoms than the people who went to therapy. And that study basically discovered this thing called bibliotherapy, which is that if you write something well enough, it can actually be a more effective therapeutic intervention than classical <clears throat> therapy. Now that's more of a highlight of a critique of how ineffective our classical therapies are, but it, that was the birth of my career, that discovering that was the birth of my idea of if I can just say or write the thing well enough, I could die. And what I said or wrote could continue to help heal people. And so I, for 10 years, my big thing was change your stories. Because what cognitive behavioral therapy is, it's, it's essentially, there are 10 common ways that we lie to ourselves with our self-talk that if you can catch and then prove to yourself that what you're saying is actually not true, it can dramatically improve the feeling of being depressed. And so like one is like black or white thinking, one is catastrophizing, a big one is mind reading, believing that you know what the other person is thinking about you and that it's, ne it's negative. And CBT teaches you how to catch these and change them. And so for 10 years, I was the dude just saying like, change your stories, change your stories, change your stories. And then last year in doing research for Aubrey's book, I was trying to understand addiction. And because of the work of Gabor Mate, I was basically able to see really clearly that the root of all addiction is actually trauma. And I didn't really know what trauma was. Like I had heard the word, but I had never really connected to it. And the way that I, the way that my mind works if, if, is if I find something that I'm interested in, I go find who are the people that created this and then read their direct books and their direct studies. So I got How the Body Keeps Score and then every book by Peter Levine, who's regarded as kind of the godfather of healing trauma. And then for the next couple of months, I just read these books and it changed my paradigm of psychology. I was wrong for 10 years. I was wrong that if the animal body is traumatized, you can't change the stories that the stories are actually adaptive coping behaviors that are a manifestation of a body that feels like it's uh, in danger. And the reason I was wrong was because I didn't have the type of trauma that I was studying. And so because my nervous system felt safe, I thought that the way that you heal is just to change your mind. <clears throat> and it was big for me 
to realize that I had gotten it fundamentally wrong, that if the body is traumatized, you can't change the stories, or it's incredibly hard to change the stories. <clears throat> and so the first thing that's really important to understand is trauma at its root is a biological function. And it's a biologically adaptive function to cope with the presence of a unescapable pain, essentially. And if you're a child and your caretaker is doing something that is painful, you can't escape because it's in your, it's in your evolutionary programming to have to try to adapt, to stay connected to your primary caretakers or you die. And that your trauma is not a reflection of you being incapable or that you did something wrong or that you are broken. It's adaptive. <clears throat> and in my research, there's two classical types of PTSD. There's what's considered shock trauma or classical PTSD. And then something that's really been advocated for in the last 10 years is this thing called complex PTSD. So acute trauma comes from the classic example is that if you're a soldier and a bomb goes off near you, your body goes through some evolutionarily adaptive instincts to protect yourself. And I'll get into that more soon. And that if that's not fully processed, you have all these symptoms that get worse as time goes on because a bunch of things get impaired because you can't relax. And, but there's this thing called complex PTSD. <clears throat> most of us have some version of and complex PTSD as explained to me by a psychiatrist that works with PTSD is essentially it's the trauma of 10,000 paper cuts. And the idea is that <clears throat> whenever you growing up had the authentic need to express an emotion and you felt you couldn't for whatever reason, that emotion gets stuck in you. And for men, it's in our culture, it's most often crying or being vulnerable. And for women in our culture, it's most often anger and being vocal. And that this can affect a lot of things. And I'll get more into that soon. In doing my research, I propose that there's a third type of trauma and it's story trauma. And story trauma is essentially like one of the ways that our brains operates is it's creating a story about who we are and what the world is and what we're doing. And if you don't feel like you're making progress in that story, you're going to have depression and anxiety and some other things. And if you feel like you're making progress in that story, you're going to feel good. There are things that can happen to you that can completely shatter who you think you are, what you think the world is. And because those two things get shattered, your nervous system doesn't know how to measure whether or not it's growing. And that can cause massive depression or anxiety. And then an, an example of story trauma is if you've been married to someone for 10 years and you come home one day and they're gone and they left a note saying that they've had an affair for the last eight years and that they've left you, you haven't been exposed to classical PTSD and it's also not complex PTSD in that moment, but something has broken you so fundamentally that you don't know who you are anymore because you're no longer a husband or a wife. Your past 
just broke because what you thought your past was for the last eight years with that partner is no longer true. <clears throat> and now you don't know what you're becoming. And so you're going through, you know, what some people would call the dark night of the soul. So those are the three types of trauma that I see. Now, to understand trauma, it's really important to move into evolutionary biology. So in our evolutionary history, we were both prey animals and predator animals at different junctures in our evolutionary unfolding. And when you watch what a prey animal does in the presence of a predator, there's some really great videos online that Paul Levine or that Peter Levine actually speaks over to really break this down. But we essentially have four instincts to deal with a predator or, the, or with something that feels like a predator. We can either fight it, we can flee from it, we f or prey animals have an instinct where they will freeze, and I'll break that down. And there's something unique to humans because we're so social that's called fawning. And it's essentially like continuing to self-transgress your truth in order to maintain a safe relationship with an unsafe person. And I'll get into that more. For classical PTSD, it, it's the freeze response that's really important to understand. So if a gazelle is being chased by a lion, it doesn't feel like it can fight it, so it will run. If the lion catches it, what the animal will do as the lion is trying to eat it is it will freeze. And the freeze response is an instinct and it's incredibly powerful. And it has a bunch of evolutionarily adaptive functions. The first one is that it makes you appear dead. And to a predator, their instincts are, unless they're super hungry, they don't want to eat something that's dead because it could have disease. So that's the first thing it does. The next thing it does is that the most predatorial animals need an instinct or need the stimulus of something moving for it to trigger its like chasing or eating. And so it can help you get away from that instinct dynamic. The third one that's really powerful is that the freeze response can actually numb you from the pain of being clawed or eaten. And then the fourth thing is that it can actually create a disassociation where the consciousness can leave the body temporarily to not experience what is happening. In animals, if the freeze response works and the lion either gets distracted or gets bored or just doesn't want to eat it because it's not that hungry and doesn't want to eat something that seems dead, that as soon as the gazelle feels safe, it will bolt up and run away. And then once it's far enough away, it will start to have tremors. It will look like it's having a seizure. And what that is, is it's the muscular system discharging the freeze instinct. And the way our nervous system has evolved is that when it feels that discharge, it can relax again. What happens in humans is that we can freeze in the presence of a predatorial energy. And because we have this shame and judgment and all sorts of things where we're deeply disconnected from our bodies, we might never have the discharge. And if you don't have the discharge, you're stuck in this cycle that's not completed 
that basically tells your nervous system somewhere in my direct vicinity, the predator is still there. So I cannot relax. And so it starts to disrupt your sleep. And as your sleep is disrupted and you stay in this highly agitated, it starts to destroy your immune system and your body's ability to repair itself. <clears throat> and there's a whole plethora of symptoms that the longer you stay stuck in that cycle, the more the symptoms will grow. And to an untrained physician or psychiatrist, they might see you having five different disorders that they give you five different medications for that all five of the medications, all they do is numb how loud that symptom is, but they don't heal the thing that's causing the symptomology. And that if you're able to move through that last stage of the freeze response where you discharge, you will experience all of the symptoms reduce. And as you start to sleep more and you are able to be in that relaxed parasympathetic state longer, all your symptoms can heal. And the four classical symptoms of acute PTSD or shock PTSD is basically, it's called hypervigilance. You know, like if you see someone with wide eyes and their eyes are always wide, that's an indication that they might be there. The big one is disassociation, that they're easily able to leave their body if stress gets too high. And it might be so severe that they black out. I forget what the other two are off the top of my head, but I have an article on my website called What is Trauma? And a podcast also that really breaks this down and links to the books and the resources and the studies. So that's classical PTSD and people who have gone through acute situations in childhood where either they were physically abused um, or sexually abused really traumatically, or if they had some type of social experience that was so overwhelming that they froze, they likely have PTSD or classic PTSD. And like I said earlier, most of us have some degree of complex PTSD, which is if you inhibit the natural expression of your emotions, you likely have some version of that. And then, of course, there's the story trauma, which is my hypothesis. It's not supported by research that I've seen, but based off of everything that I've learned, it makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, it does. And so for uh, shock PTSD or classical PTSD, Peter Levine is kind of the OG in this space, and he created something called somatic experiencing. And there's somatic experiencing therapists all over the country that are trained in this type of therapy that's incredibly powerful for helping people heal this type of trauma. And there's a video on YouTube where Peter Levine does this live with some with a war veterinarian who has what looks like to classical doctors, like he has Tourette's and he also can't sleep and they've given him a bunch of medication and it's really debilitated his well-being. He's on stage with Peter Levine and Peter Levine is asking him questions and he's nervous because there's an audience and he's twitching. And the type of twitch he has is his right eye will like blink really hard. His head will tilt to the right and his right shoulder will come up. And so it's this like twitching thing. And uh, for people who can't see the video, you know, I tried my best to articulate what it looks like. <laughs> and what somatic experiencing 
does, and Peter Levine is the best in the world at it, is it tries to get you to non-judgmentally become aware of the raw sensations that are in your body. And so Peter Levine was slowly getting him to become non-judgmentally aware of, I believe he had like a twitch in his finger that was happening. And he was asking him some questions of just asking him to become more present to just feeling his body and not judging his body. A quick side note, if someone asks you how you're doing, or if someone asks you how you feel and you say good or bad, that's a judgment. That's not a raw sensation. There is no raw sensation in the body that is good or bad. And that's just an insight into how disassociated we are as a habit of really just feeling the raw sensation in our body and where we're feeling something in our body. And through leading him through these questions, the vet starts to articulate that he's starting to feel like waves of energy moving through his body. Cause like just becoming aware of the thing is actually starting to allow it to relax. And by the end of the video, he stops twitching. And Peter Levine explained that the twitch was actually his body's adaptive compensatory response to the bomb that exploded next to him that killed his friend. And that the twitch was actually his body embracing for the impact of the bomb, but he never got to a place where he could fully discharge it. Wow. And as the somatic experiencing therapy unfolded, he was able to have small releasing tremors throughout his body and there's a follow-up video at the end of that video of the vet like a couple of months later and he's off most of the medications that he was taking and he doesn't have the Tourette's twitch any longer and that's just one example of what somatic experiencing can do for acute PTSD and so that's the first resource that I would recommend for people who think that they might have acute PTSD. And if you're not sure, I deeply recommend you check out the podcast, What is Trauma? Because I really mm. break it down. Yeah, it's amazing. Phenomenal, bro, by the way. I've listened Thank to you. that a couple of times. And yeah, the course, yeah, we'll get into all that. You like, it's phenomenal. Thank and you. I highly recommend you guys going and checking that out after this because it's, it's got everything. You know, and I, I wanted to be able to kind of extract that same kind of thing into this because dude, I was fucking blown away when I, when I listened to that. So thank you. Yeah. yeah. And so the next one is complex PTSD. And as the name implies, this is a more complex thing to try to heal. And I didn't get into the details of how to heal it on the podcast, because I realized that if I was going to try to answer that question too, I'd probably still be working on that podcast and it wouldn't be out yet. But there's a book that is the book that's the most recommended of the, from the experts that I got to talk to, and it's called Complex PTSD. I forget who it's written by, but if you Google it and like Amazon book, it'll be the first thing that pops up. But the core of healing complex PTSD, it almost requires that you have a therapist, but it doesn't have to be a therapist, but it's essentially you have to reteach your nervous system that the energy in your life that feels like a caretaker is safe and that there's trust because that was fundamentally wounded in your childhood. And people with complex PTSD tend to not trust people at a very core level, no matter what 
it's it's almost impossible for them to really trust anyone. And they will likely be in relationships that play out the wounding dynamic. And this is a side note, and I hope that we can get to it, but I'm just going to yeah. put a flag in it. But there's this thing called, man, I'm, f- I'm forgetting the technical term for it, but it's basically where you relive the trauma cycle over and over and over again. And if you don't understand what the body is trying to do, it can seem like the most cruel thing that the psyche would purposefully put you back through the initial traumatic experience over and over again. But the reason why the psyche is trying to do that is it's trying to get you as an adult now to get back to that same part in the trauma cycle so that you can claim a new action that can actually heal and restore the younger part of you that wasn't able to do that. And this gets into some parts of psychology that aren't as mainstream, but I think if you're a practitioner, you can't argue with the effects of it and the fact that this type of stuff occurs. But you have a little boy or a little girl inside of you who is still stuck in that situation and it lives with you. And, oh, I believe it's called reenactment. Mm -hmm. And that if you don't reenact it and then claim a new way of being, in that situation, you stay in the trauma response. But so with complex PTSD, finding someone that will do the work with you to earn your trust through being impeccable, they start to hold that energetic relationship that wasn't present with the primary caretaker. And then it's a process of connecting to the things that needed to authentically be expressed that weren't expressed. And there's many different techniques and therapies that one can do to start to move this energy. But it's essentially like, can you get to the point where you can say, no, that's not okay. Or maybe you really need to cry. Or maybe you really need to yell. And there's an interesting thread of there was a type of, there was a type of therapy back in the eighties and nineties that was popular. That was called primal scream therapy. And at its core, it was effective, but it became kind of this pseudo therapeutic movement where people were actually just practicing being angry. And there were some studies that were done that showed that it wasn't that effective. So not screaming just for screaming sake, but that if there is truly a part of you that needed to scream, no, at some point in your childhood, being able to do that, in the presence of this person that's holding the energetic node of the caretaker can be tremendously healing. And a type of intervention that works for both um, acute PTSD and complex PTSD is what's called holotropic breathwork. And holotropic breathwork was created by a psychiatrist named Stanislav Grof, who uh, back in the 50s and 60s, before LSD was made illegal, was using LSD at very high doses on the most compromised type of mental disorders. And he was seeing some of the most incredible healings that psychology had ever seen for these type of conditions that were classically understood as being untreatable. And essentially what he found is that everyone has birth trauma that fundamentally the act of being born is a trauma, especially the way it's done in modern culture where the mother is likely drugged and she's born and the child is born into a sterile white 
room and is being handled by people who have gloves who aren't the mother. They might be put inside of a crib that's disconnected from the mother and the mother might be drugged and all sorts of things and that it's traumatic. And that if you, in his experiments, and he's written a couple of books on this, that if you give someone a high enough dose of LSD in a therapeutic setting, they were all starting to relive their birth trauma and they would have these seizures and their bodies would move in all these interesting ways that were the movements that they were experiencing when they were being born. Wow. And, and once a psychedelics were made illegal, he basically discovered that there's a certain type of breathing pattern that you can do that puts you into the exact same state as being on a very high dose of LSD. And so he spent the next 20, 30, 40 years perfecting this type of uh, breathing ceremony called holotropic breath work. And there's an institute for it. The people are incredibly well-trained. You can Google and find places all over the country where they will hold space for this. But it's like a three or four hour experience where you come into a room with other people who are doing this and there's a lot of facilitators and you lie down and it's a kind of a dark room and you are instructed to start breathing. And the type of breathing is essentially hyperventilation. It's some version of, and what's wild is I've done this type of breath work. Yeah. Before you start trying to do it, it feels like it's impossible to do it for two hours. It's hard, man. It's scary it's, too. It's, it's incredibly hard and it is incredibly scary. And I do not recommend that you try to do this alone. If you feel like there's trauma in you that um, wants to come out because you're going to want a safe space with trained mm. uh, facilitators to be able to help you because you are going to enter into a psychedelic experience. But what's interesting is after like 10 minutes, like you have to try for the first couple of minutes. Yeah. But once you're in that space and they start playing tribal intense music and you hear everyone else doing the breathing, something clicks, something changes. It's almost like we are designed to be able to get into psychedelic spaces if we change our breathing, which we clearly are. And that something takes over and you enter into a completely liminal space where you forget that you're even trying to breathe. And you will have visions and you will have somatic experiences. And there's a bunch of books that he's written as the result of doing holotropic breath work. And so these people hold space for you. You will likely scream and weep and tremor and seize and your body will move in all sorts of interesting ways that if you just allow it to, it will naturally do what it needs to do to heal. And then afterwards, he has them all paint mandalas. And so mandalas are one of the most ancient symbols that humanity has ever created for representing what some would call God, others would call the psyche, but he just asks them to paint. And a mandala is a circle, is a circle inside of a square. And that's really the only rule. You can draw whatever you want inside of the circle and uh, you just implant the circle inside of a square. And then he has everyone share who feels called to share. And he, he's been doing it for 20 or 30 or 40 years now. And it's incredibly powerful. You don't have to take any exogenous chemicals and it works. And so that is something that all of us can get healing from no matter where you are on your journey or on your healing. 
And then the last one is story trauma. And story trauma is the one type of trauma that feels like it fits into the type of research I've been doing for the last 10 years. And essentially, it requires you to rewrite the story of who you are. And there's a whole literature on something called expressive writing that was pioneered by a man named James Pennebaker, who is actually still teaching at UT. And he's, he's very old, and I hope I get a chance to talk to him before he passes. But there's over 100 studies that have shown that if you do this expressive writing technique on something painful that happened to you in your past, and the way you do the technique is for four days in a row, you write for 20 minutes stream of consciousness, which means you don't think about it, you don't edit anything, and you don't have to show it to anyone that after doing it for four days, over the next six months, you'll go to the doctor half as often. You're going to sleep better. If you have PTSD, your scores on PTSD tests will go down. You'll score higher on cognitive tests. They've done one study where they found that you're more likely to get employed if you do this. If you have an autoimmune disorder, it's symptoms will go down. And it's a whole different side note, but you could make the argument that a tremendous amount of autoimmune disorders, not entirely, but significantly are the result of unprocessed trauma. There's also environmental toxins that have accumulated in our environment for the last 50 years because of choices made by corporations and such that add to this. But a lot of autoimmune disorders can be significantly reduced or even healed by treating trauma but that the expressive writing technique is essentially how you rebuild your story by integrating something from your past. And what's really interesting to feel into here is if when you go to bed at night, you start to think about something from your past that disturbs you and you weren't choosing to think about it, or if you're in the shower and you start replaying something that happened in the past and you aren't choosing to think about it, or if you're in your car and something's coming up from your past and you're not choosing to think about it, that is your psyche telling your conscious mind something traumatic happened in the past that we don't fully understand. And we are afraid that if it happens again, we won't know how to act adaptively. And what's wild is that if you just give yourself the space for four days to tell yourself the story, it can alchemize that experience. And an interesting caveat here is what we have found through some really good research is that if something traumatic happens, you don't want to do some type of trauma healing right away. You don't want to do expressive writing right away. And that there's actually like, I forget the technical term for it, but there's like a, a movement that's happened in the last 15 or 20 years called like crisis interventional, like crisis interventions or something where when something traumatic happens to like a fire department or a police department or whatever, these people will come in right away and try to help people move through the trauma right away. And what they find is that this actually makes the trauma cut deeper. And that the hypothesis is that it is adaptive to temporarily use your coping strategies for up to like a month after something like this happens. And that you have to give yourself proper time to then go in and you know do the work. The metaphor that comes to mind is that if you get a cut right now, if like if you can just sow it, there's a healing process that will naturally happen. 
But if you try to force all the flesh together and all the skin together and like demand that it be healed now, it actually takes longer to heal. And that there's actually, and I think what's so important here is that the trauma response is adaptive. It is not a function of you being broken or of something being wrong with you. And it's not a reflection of your shortcomings. It is something that you have been programmed to do by the intelligence of evolution in the presence of something that is incredibly painful. And so the last thing that I want to touch on is revisiting the idea of reenactment. That what reenactment shows me is that there is a natural intelligence inside of you that is always seeking to help you grow and to heal. And I think kind of the core of our problems in mental health is that we don't understand this function. And that I think almost all the symptoms that are codified in the DSM, which is the like Bible that psychiatrists use to label you with disorders, is misunderstood that those are actually the calls of this internal intelligence trying to tell you exactly what needs to be done in order to heal. It's not because you have a disorder. It's that there's a wound somewhere. And these are the expressive symptoms of that wound. And that no drug in the world that numbs will ever heal because you're numbing the call of this intelligence. The caveat I want to offer that's really important here is because of the culture that we're in, you may have a wound that is expressing symptoms over years and years and years, and you might be at the point where you can't get out of bed and that taking some of these numbing chemicals short term is adaptive as long as there's a plan and a strategy to start to do the things with your body that will help you get to the point of internal strength where you can then face this problem. So things like antidepressants or anti-anxiety medications or even antipsychotic medications, if used intelligently for the short term, are helpful. But in my research, and I can go on a fucking four-hour diatribe of the research I've done in this area and talk about the books and the studies, using any of these things long-term, at best, don't heal you. And at worst, will actually create damage in your nervous system will it, where it will make it incredibly hard to ever get off of them so that you can begin to actually do the things in your life that would heal the core. And that's a whole intricate side note. And the thing again, you know, because of the legal system that we have, like if I offered this as prescriptive advice, I could be sued, you know, because I don't have the right letters at the end of my name. So for legal reasons, this is not prescriptive, but it is me sharing the truth of my earnest research that I would deeply recommend that if you're on any type of medications that seek to numb, you know, cause there are types of medications that save lives. But if you're on something that, you know, you're taking to numb something, I would deeply invite you to understand trauma and to take the actions, if possible, in a safe way with people who can guide you how to process that trauma. And then there's a whole thread of communities online for people who want to safely move off of these numbing chemicals because it's not safe to get off of them 
right away if you've taken them for a long time. And the reason it's not safe is because of the damage that it does. But that's a whole side note that I'm honestly not comfortable getting into if I haven't refreshed myself on all the studies and all the things, but it's worth articulating. I love that, man. That's why I I, I always appreciate what you say because it's you've done so much research on it and you're just always in truth about it. And dude, there's so much there. So much there. <laughs> like I don't want to stop you. I was like, this was just like it was it was it was magical just to hear you explain all that. And I think it's really useful for people. There's another area I want to get into that kind of ties into that, and that's with addiction. Yeah. And the you know how does trauma and addiction work together? So the OG here for me is Gabor Monte. He's an MD who has really incredibly studied trauma almost his entire life. And he's written a bunch of books on it. And I believe a documentary just came out a couple of months ago. I wish I could remember it. It's great. I saw it too. Yeah, we'll, we'll find it in the show notes. Cool. I can't remember the name. Cool. We're going to put all this stuff in the show notes for people to have like the resources Perfect. just to go check it out. It might be called Trauma and Recovery or Trauma and Addiction, but we'll find it and we'll link it. But that documentary does a really great job of summarizing how Gabor Mate sees addiction and his essential stance is all addiction comes from unprocessed trauma. The wisdom, radical- the wisdom of trauma. Perfect. Thank that's you. And I have not done enough research to make a claim that strong, but I respect him enough to at least offer it as a voice in this conversation. And the classical study that really highlights our misunderstanding of addiction is the government kept track of how many people went to Vietnam and did opium in Vietnam. And I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think it was more than half of the soldiers at least did opium once or did it repeatedly while they were there. And then when they come home, something like 5% or less, it might even be 1%, continued to use it, who got addicted. And one of the classic misunderstandings about addiction is that there are chemicals that if you take them once, you're going to be addicted forever. And that that study shows that that's not true, that the one story we have about opium being incredibly, or heroin being incredibly addictive is there is a misunderstanding here. And it's that if you have the trauma that makes you susceptible to that specific type of drug, its hooks will will sink in deep quickly and can ruin your life. But if you don't have that initial wound, you can try it and not do it. And this is not advice to go try opium or heroin. But that study highlights that um, addiction is not something outside of us that happens to us. It's because there's a precondition inside of us that makes us susceptible to it. Mm. And the other thing that he articulates that's radical is that addiction is anything that you do in the short term that you knows that, that you know is negative in the long term. And he makes the argument that everyone has addictions. The amount you check your phone, probably an addiction. Mm-hmm. The my workaholism is an addiction. He is very clear that he's been addicted to working for a long time. 
and that you know people can be addicted to sex or to power or to money or to getting validation from people that they don't know or whatever it is that we all have some type of addiction because in his view we all have some type of trauma that's not healed like one of the things to feel into man is one of the most powerful studies that i've seen is there's a type of like animal biology where people will study the behavioral patterns of wild animals and compare it to animals in zoos and what they find is that no animal that's in its original environment in the way that it has evolved to be shows mental disorders none you take almost any highly social animal so like elephants or birds or primates or like whales and such and you put them inside of zoos almost all of them over enough time will begin to show symptoms of what we would call mental disorders so like birds will begin to rip out their own feathers and there's almost like um like adhd type of ocd way elephants will begin to grind their tusks against rock down to nubs some bonobos or chimps will leave the troop and go to the edge of the zoo container and isolate themselves and show bodily symptoms of being depressed and that what that shows is that when you take an animal out of the environment that it has um, evolved to be optimal inside especially if it's a highly social animal it will show mental disorder and if you feel into what our culture is i don't think it's on purpose i think it's from naivety one of my favorite quotes is don't ascribe maliciousness to that which can be described by incompetence it's some type of philosophical, it's like a version of Ackman's razor. I can't remember the name of it, but we've not evolved to live inside of these boxes that we call homes. We've not evolved to only know a couple of people deeply and not be a part of a tribe. <clears throat> we've not evolved to eat most of the shit that we eat. We have not evolved to deal with social media. And when you're inside all day and you don't work out, and you eat things that your body hasn't evolved to eat, and you're in social dynamics where you never feel truly seen or you don't feel safe to express yourself, it is natural that you are going to show traumatic symptoms that are going to look like mental disorders. And that addiction is one of those coping behaviors. And that fundamentally, people are trying to not feel whatever it is that they are feeling. And that if you're feeling something that doesn't feel good, it is very likely a reflection of there's something in your environment that's wrong. And that it's a much larger issue. But the way we treat addiction is that we've made many of these things illegal that people who are the most susceptible to addiction would become addicted to. And then if we ever catch you doing it, we traumatize you more by imprisoning you and then labeling you a felon and making it harder for you to get jobs. And there's a whole system around you know, the war on drugs that actually more traumatizes the people most susceptible to these type of addictions. And Michael Pollan just came out with a book a couple of months ago called like Your Mind on Plants or something like that. Yeah. And he has a direct quote from the leader of the DEA who was working under Nixon when these laws were passed. And I wish I knew it by heart, but you can Google it. And the dude 
at the end of his life admitted we pass these laws to basically control or wound the African-American and Mexican populations. And that these, these wars on drugs went into these communities that were already disenfranchised because of the system that they were born into, took out most of the males, left these trauma holes, that would make the, the descendants of those communities even more prone to that type of trauma, and then seeded the resources that would make them drug dealers and things like that, and just like ruined and deeply hurt those communities, and that it was because of racism, and that that shit is explicitly admitted by the leader of the DEA at that time. Like, wow. this is a side note, but the thing about that, that actually is like a gold lining is that why would he admit that? And I think it's because we all have this intrinsic knowing of like what is fundamentally wrong. Right. And when we're young and trying to go get our status and our power, we will transgress that if we're not careful. But as we get closer to death, there's something that happens inside of us where it's like, we just want to speak the truth. It's almost like we want to put our soul at ease before we pass. Hmm. And the fact that he fucking admitted that on record is actually a testament to there's something inside of us that wants to be good, that wants to be in truth, that wants to bring about peace and beauty in this world and even the most fucking corrupt humans have this opportunity and like i'm grateful that he was able to admit it because we can start to have a more mature conversation around this war on drugs which is making this addiction phenomenon more intense and one other thread here that's important to give awareness to is Portugal, a couple of years ago, passed a law where all drugs were made legal and they created clinics specifically for heroin addicts where the addicts could come to the clinic. They would get completely clean heroin, which is tremendously safer than the terrible stuff that is on the streets because it's illegal. And they were allowed to for free get the heroin at the clinic. And the only stipulation is they had to stay there during their experience. And what they tracked over the next couple of years is the people who came at the beginning, less of them came a few years later, and that there was not a single death from heroin or from like illegal heroin that was happening in the places where they instituted this new policy and these new type of clinics. And what Gabor Mate articulates from that is that same energy inside of us that is seeking to heal you through putting you through reenactments of your trauma is still alive in you. And that when you go to a substance like heroin, there's a part of you that doesn't want to be dependent on it. And if you can get the fix enough and it's safe, you can start to, from that place, start to make the changes in your life organically without having to be taught that will actually pull you away from the thing that you know is actually not long-term healthy for you. 
And that fundamentally what gave them the ability to do that was safety. And so when you feel into how we treat addiction in our culture, it's incredibly unsafe to be addicted to something that's illegal. And we traumatize you more deeply if you get caught. And I'm glad I'm not in the position to have to make policies at the highest level, but maybe one day I will find myself there. But my intuition is that if we made all drugs legal and we set up the proper clinics and therapists and helpers and healers to create safe spaces for people to move through that, it would be hard for the first couple of years. But the generational impact, two to three to four generations from now, I think would reveal a world or a culture that looks incredibly different from how we look right now. Because one of the things to feel into, man, is basically every metric for mental disorder is rising in our culture. And we have, you know, the most comfort the most material success of any known civilization in history. And, you know, we couldn't track the mental dysfunction of previous civilizations, but you can make the argument that we are the most mentally unhealthy. And I think a massive part of it is because of our misunderstanding of trauma and our misunderstanding of addiction. Do you think that that's a possibility of that happening at some point? Is so... That like when I was 20 and 21 and I was experimenting with psychedelics, if you had told me that in 10 years, many states will have, would have legalized the use of psychedelics and that there would be an organization that is about to get approved by the FDA to use MDMA to heal trauma. And that John Hopkins, one of the most premier research institutions in the world would be doing multiple studies on mushrooms and how it helps people with depression and addiction, I would have been like, there's no fucking way. Yeah. And so I absolutely do see that it is a possibility. I think that the way it will likely play out is not the way that Portugal went, where it was a wholesale legalization of everything at a federal level, but that what MAPS is doing, what John Hopkins is doing, what Tim Ferriss is doing, like shout out to Tim yeah. Ferriss. Like it gives me goosebumps to Same. feel into that. There is someone who could be making billions if he wanted has done the personal work where he has directed his incredible mind and his incredible resources to intelligently making potentially generationally influential decisions that is personally putting forward how to heal trauma with psychedelics and like just i know that he likely knows this and that he will be uncomfortable accepting it but he is doing more for the mental health of this country than probably any president has ever done and um just like deep respect to what he is doing yeah yeah man Th this kind of leads into kind of the next question which which involves you know psychedelics you know so with my own journey through healing and trauma and what i've learned you know i've tried a bunch of the different modalities you know i haven't gone that deep with holotropic breathing where i do it for hours but i've done aubrey's where it was like you know 45 minutes or an hour and it was fucking crazy is yeah. i've done you know lots of breath work but 
not to that level, which is super powerful for me, you know, danced with ayahuasca, 5-MeO DMT, like same sort of things, you know, just the different things, you know, even from journaling and meditation and all of these things have had a have place. But where I sit right now is I always wonder for the new person getting into this, how do they know when it's time to have a dance with psychedelics or yeah. how do they know when, you know, to use another modality, because a lot, there's a lot out there. There's a lot of misinformation, right? There's a lot of things, you know, I went to Joe Dispenza, went to his week long thing. It blew my fucking mind. <laughs> so I saw into what our bodies are capable of as well yeah. is to go through that deep meditation. So yeah. that's, that changed for me as well, seeing that, well, maybe, maybe I personally don't need as much psychedelics as I thought I might've needed. So I guess my, my question is, is where do you sit with that? Yeah. Like, what do you recommend for people that are like, all right, I probably have some trauma. I may have worked through it, but how do I know what the, what is the next step for me and how do I navigate what to do? Yeah. So the first thing is psychedelics are not for everyone. There are people who because of the way that they've developed, not because they're intrinsically broken, but because of the way that they developed, they might not have a strong sense of how to navigate three-dimensional reality competently. And that, to, and that taking a psychedelic might disrupt them to the point where there is a psychotic break. And because of the culture that we're in, the way that we treat psychotic breaks, and this is a whole thread that I could talk about for hours, it makes it worse. And so being aware that the cultural context that you are in is not conducive to having what we call a psychotic break, but might actually not be that. There are people who shouldn't take it. It's also not something to do recreationally. I've been in the psychedelic space for 12 years. I've almost never have taken it recreationally. I don't think I've ever taken a heavy dose recreationally ever. I do it infrequently. I do it intentionally. And now I'm in a space where I can do it in incredible world-class containers. There's a couple of ways that you can begin. The first one is I think where Western-minded people can start that is the most effective is actually journaling. And it's why you know I talk about journaling so much. Mm. there is something inside of you that if you ask a question with the openness to receive a response, there is something in you that doesn't feel like you that will answer you. And to really feel into just what that means is like existentially transformative. And you can literally do it sober today. And I would recommend that people who feel like they're at the very beginning of this, that they go check out my journaling course. Yes. I've, I've made it cheap and I fucking have put some powerful techniques in there and it's a place to start. Incredible, bro. By the way, I just want to acknowledge that I've done Thank it. You. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and I know a lot of people who have, man, it's yeah. helped a lot of people, bro. That, that course you, is phenomenal. So, and then the next thing is meditation. Meditation as a fundamental like consciousness hygiene practice has been with me for five or six years, and it has guided me through some of my most difficult psychedelic experiences that if I didn't have it as a 
habit, I would have likely have had some psychotic breaks. The What I would offer to people is specifically Vipassana meditation, which is like classical mindfulness or insight meditation, where you, you're not doing massive Joe Dispenza stuff where you're envisioning the future and then feeling it like it's now and changing the way your body is chemically producing hormones, which is really possible. Vipassana is the foundation of learning one of the most fundamental and key aspects of your existence, which is that everything that arises in your consciousness is not the thing that witnesses. The thing that witnesses has never been hurt. It's never been traumatized. It's never been damaged. It's never been sad or happy. There is something inside of you that is here right now that if you learn how to connect to is the ultimate anchor for any experience. And the Waking Up app by Sam Harris is the app that I most recommend to people because he has like a 50-day intro course that's phenomenal. And there's no bullshit. And it costs like 60 bucks a year. But if you send them an email saying that you can't afford it, they'll give it to you for free. And I just love the way that he's doing what he's doing. So there's the journaling course. And then there's his waking up meditation app. And almost everyone that I'm close to, they use that app because I talk about it so much because it's so good. And I still use it. I've been using it for years. With that said, um, there's a very strong argument that you can make that the reason humans branched off from apes in a significant enough way where we created culture is because we cultivated the ability to have altered states of consciousness, which actually induce insight. And this is a whole technical thread that I could get into if we have time and you're interested. And that maybe the foundation of what made us uniquely us, where we were able to create language and culture and all that, all of that is because we were reliably moving into non-ordinary states of consciousness that generate meaningful insights that allow us to create useful things that change us and change the world. And what that would imply is that you are designed to be able to do this. And you are designed to be able to do this in a way that actually improves your life fundamentally. And we've got great studies that have come out in the last 10 years that show that so there's a personality scale that uh, psychologists have created that's the most empirically validated personality test. It's not, you know, your fucking human design or what your astrological symbols are, although there's some kernels there, but it's called the big five. And one of the big five traits that most correlates to like success and to intelligence is this thing called openness. And openness is essentially curiosity. It's being interested by new ideas and being able to deal with like the fundamentally unknown. And that what they have found is that the only thing that we have ever discovered that significantly, that scientifically significantly or statistically significantly increases openness is psychedelics. And that John Hopkins has done this research that if you do, I believe they were doing three to five grams, which is a lot. Um, inside of a controlled setting with therapists and with hours and hours of psychotherapeutic meetings before and after, they found that there's a statistically significant increase in openness 
that was still there a year later. And what that means is that it's not a function of a chemical being inside of you, that the chemical inside of you creates an experience, that the experience itself changes something inside of you that opens you up to being able to process novelty that's still there a year later. And this is a bigger story to get into, but we are at a time in history where there is more novelty being generated every day than someone from a hundred years ago would likely experience in a lifetime. And that if we are going to navigate the turmoil that we're in, one of the fundamental aspects that we will need to cultivate is openness. And on a different thread, your life is fundamentally a set of interesting puzzles. And there's been great research done on creativity and altered states of consciousness and psychedelics. Essentially what they do is they put you into an altered state of consciousness that if you feel safe, can actually give you new insights into how to solve some of the puzzles of your life that can change your life. And also non-ordinary states of consciousness can, what's the right word, like spontaneously help you move trauma where they're there needs to, you don't have to read anything or learn anything, but that if you feel safe and you've cultivated the psychological disposition where you can surrender, you will spontaneously sometimes heal something that's old and it will make complete sense to you in the moment. But the caveat again, these things are incredibly powerful and that if done, even if done responsibly, can be destabilizing if you don't have a community that can help you integrate and you don't have an environment that is safe. Like Tim Ferriss has a story where he went and did ayahuasca and the entire night he basically had full body seizures and he woke up the next morning with like wood friction burns all over his face because his face was just planted into the ground and he was shaking and he didn't know what to do with it. And the person that helped him move through it was a mentor who was a meditation teacher, uh, Jack Cornfield. And that if he hadn't have had Jack Cornfield, he doesn't know if he would have been able to move through that. And so there are ways to get into non-ordinary states of consciousness, like breath work, where if it starts to get overwhelming, you can simply stop doing the hyperventilating breathing. The thing with a psychedelic is you can't stop it. And so it really is kind of a masterclass. And this is for sure not prescriptive, but my understanding of psychedelics and the psyche is that if you were interested in this, if you have done the journaling and you've done the meditation and you really have found a safe container, the easiest on-ramp seems to be MDMA. And classically, that's not known as a psychedelic because of the way it functions chemically and the way that it's structured, but it is a non-ordinary state of consciousness that seems to make you stay lucid, but your body feels tremendously safe and you're able to process some really incredible things. And then I think the next step above that is mushrooms. And there's reasons for this, but mushrooms are easy to safely source. If you have a good source, you know it's mushrooms and it grew organically out of the earth. And just as a function of sourcing, it's safer than something like LSD. Its window of action is three to four hours. And so like LSD could be nine to 12 hours, depending on how much and what it's like. 
And that that's a really good first place to start when you really want to enter into the psychedelic space. You may never need to do LSD because it's harder to navigate. But Stanloff Groff is a perfect example. He was giving massive doses to hundreds of the most severely mentally ill people. And with the right container and the right guide, it was tremendously healing for hundreds. And then everything else, I think above that is essentially like, you know, if you're called and like, there are people I know who have done no psychedelics ever and went and did ayahuasca. And the place that I have gone personally that I can vouch for is Soltara in Costa Rica. And it's legal there. Like I've known multiple people who have done no psychedelics who have gone there and done ayahuasca and the respect to those people of not knowing what that space is like and going fully into like ayahuasca is one of the hardest ones I would say, but it's also my favorite for reasons that I won't get into. It's doable. And the last thing that I would offer here is this is in conjunction with journaling and meditation as like a preliminary. But the thing that I have studied that has most made me graceful in the psychedelic experience is doing dream work. And this is a whole fucking thread that I could go on for a couple of hours, but neurochemically and neurophysiologically and phenomenon phenomenologically, which just means like the quality of your direct experience. Dreams are the same space as the psychedelic space. And you dream every night, you might not remember it. And there's a bunch of interesting reasons why you might not. But if you set the intention to start to try to remember your dreams, and you start to learn how to dance with your dreams, understanding that the core fundamental aspect of your psyche, that's way older than the part of you that can talk or think that it speaks through emotion and symbolic imagery. If you learn how to understand that language of the psyche, you can navigate psychedelic experiences with a grace that um, is almost unheard of. And, you know, the OG here is Carl Jung. I actually have a shirt on right now that has his face on it. You're a young Carl Jung, bro. That's just what it is. (laughs) You're the new age. And I feel super called to create a journaling or a dream course. I just haven't had the space to do it yet because I don't see a good resource that is easy to understand to help people navigate this because I had to read Carl Jung for fucking like five or six years and interpret tens of thousands of dreams for myself and other people before I started to get a sense of how to, because it's so not the way that we're taught to think. But getting into dream work is an incredible prerequisite to have grace in the psychedelic experience. And the book that I would recommend if people are interested in that is um, Man and His Symbols by Carl Jung. And it's funny. At the end of his life, you know, Carl Jung's friends were like, will you please write a book for the common person? Because what you're saying is incredibly important. And the way that you write, almost no one understands what you're saying. And so he purposefully wrote man and his symbols to try to be understandable by the common person. And still most people that I recommend it to, they're like, I don't know what the fuck this is saying. And so that's why I feel (laughs) called to one day make a, like a dream course and I will, but it hasn't been done yet. Dreams are so interesting. How does somebody 
like what's the process with actually being able to remember them? Because I never remember them. And yeah. I once in a while, yep. but it's always like a weird ass dream. Like I might have eaten something before bed or I don't know. It's yeah. it's rare. So like I never understand people like talking about their dreams and lucid dreams. I'm like, how how does that even happen? Yep. How do you make that happen? Yep. So there's a bunch of things here. And this is why I need to make a course because there's so many things. But <laughs> The first thing is that if you drink alcohol or smoke weed, especially within like five hours of going to sleep, it impairs your ability to dream. So if you're doing that, even if you're taking CBD, I find that taking CBD before I go to bed actually diminishes my chance of having dreams. That's one thing to connect to. The other thing is if you don't set the intention to try to dream, it can just pass by. So setting an intention before going to bed where you, you know, say out loud, like I will remember my dreams or whatever that can do something. Hmm. Another one is technically for whatever reason, and I don't know why this is the way that it is, but, and I believe there's been studies done on this where if you sit up in bed and your spine becomes erect, you start to forget the dream. And if you stand up, you, that phenomenon of forgetting gets even stronger. And so the thing that I do that I really advocate for people to do is you're all addicted to your phone. It's by your bed anyways. When you wake up, roll over and have the voice recording app on your home screen and click it and then feel into whatever image is there. And one of the ways to begin to recall dreams is to just focus on whatever image is present in you the moment you wake up. And if you just start to articulate that image, there's the way our psyche seems to function. This is called spreading association. But if you maintain a single thing, it starts to branch out and other things start to like come out of the fog forward. And that is one of the ways that you can remember a dream. Like, many of my dream recordings is actually me articulating the end of the dream because it's the only thing that's still present anywhere. But as I start to speak it, all this shit starts coming back up. Another thing is do not trust yourself. If you wake up during the night and you're like, Oh, I will remember that. Like I still do that. And I've been doing this for fucking 10 years. You will not remember it. Sometimes you will, but most of the time you won't. And so why is that? Why is that? In the same way that if you have a vision on psychedelics and you're like, I will never forget this. This is the most, it's, yeah. it's just the essence of that quality of the psyche that for whatever reason, it's like, don't trust yourself if you think that you're <laughs> going to remember it. And I won't go down that thread. I'll continue to give advice about how to remember your dreams. One thing that Carl Jung talks about that's not founded in science, but resonates with me is in Native American tribes that he learned about, he tells this story that it was the role of the chief to live in a certain way so that he could have dreams for the tribe. And there were like traditions to follow that would increase the chance of him having big dreams. And so some of their things were you always tell that whenever you have any type of dream, you make art from it right away. So you create a dance or you create a song or you paint something. Another one is I believe like you, like you help people, like you just fundamentally go out of your way to help people. I don't know if those things are true, 
but I do know that no one's life will get worse if they follow them. Another thing to feel into that's really interesting is your imagination is the same essence of what dreams are, but it's like a more diluted echo of what a dream is. And if you don't practice using your imagination, which most of us will go throughout our day and almost never use our imagination consciously, it feels almost like it atrophies that aspect of the psyche. And one of the things to feel into is that if you are watching a movie or you're looking at screens up until going to bed, you are outsourcing your ability to imagine, to see what is being shown to you. And so one of my intuitions, I don't know if this is true, and I don't know if it's been studied, but if for the last hour before going to sleep, you read good fiction, I think that it actually potentiates your chances of having a dream. Because when you read good fiction, you're literally churning your imagination to create a world. You're creating images. You're creating environments and people and characters and stories. And I think that that can actually increase your chances of having dreams. Now, a purely cognitive hack is one very crude technique that you can do is drink a bunch of water before you go to sleep. It will force you to get up to pee. The way that your body will tend to want to wake up is after a full sleep cycle. So you have four sleep cycles throughout your night and you dream at the end of your sleep cycles. And so if you drink a bunch of water, you're more likely to wake up in the night right after a dream cycle. A more precise hack is there's this thing called polyphasic sleep. Have you heard of this? No. So what they have found, and I think this came through governmental research, is that if you take a 20 to 30 minute nap at the same time every day, after about two weeks of teaching your body this is where we nap and this is when we nap and this is how long we nap. Your body will go straight into REM sleep because that's the thing it needs most. And you can actually replace an entire sleep cycle with that nap. And so in college, what I did is I would sleep six hours at night and I would take a nap at the same beanbag in the same library every day at 3 p.m. And it takes a couple of weeks to like teach your body to go into it. So you actually start by reducing one of your sleep cycles at night and then making yourself nap. And for like eight to 10 days, you're going to be kind of groggy. But once you teach your body to do that nap, you go straight into REM sleep. So what your experience will be when you take that nap is you will feel your body paralyze itself because that's what your body does when it starts to move into REM sleep. So you don't act out your dreams. And if you don't freak out from the fact that you're paralyzed, which is what sleep paralysis is, it's when you wake up during when your body has immobilized you. And this is a whole interesting side note, but our body or our cognition is primed to perceive based off of what the body is feeling. And so every culture has a phenomenon of like, there's this witch or this dark energy that can attack you at night. And it's this dark energy somewhere in the room and it comes and it sits on your chest and you can't move. That's sleep paralysis. Because if you feel into it for a moment, if your consciousness is getting the feedback from the body that it can't move, 
unless you've trained yourself, your first instinct is fear. And if you're in complete darkness and you feel intense fear and you can't move, your cognition will anticipate that there's a predator in the night and it comes and it sits on you and it's terrifying. Like I've, I've experienced it. And it's Me too. But there's a whole branch of yoga called uh, dream yoga. It's a type of Tibetan Buddhism that actually specialized in learning how to stay conscious through the paralysis. And then you enter directly into dreams. And so this is harder to do, but you can absolutely like quote unquote hack, even though that's kind of a crude term to during these naps, go straight into lucid dreaming. Now, a whole side note about lucid dreaming that I think is really important to articulate is because I was interested in psychology and psychedelics and dreams when lucid dreaming was really big when I was in college, I got into it. And what happened every time I became lucid, I would manifest my most primal desire, which is I would just go on a sex rampage and I would just imagine every woman I wanted to have sex with and would just have sex with them. That for sure is a reflection of my misogyny and a whole bunch of shit that I've tried to work on over the last 10 years. But I still remember the dream where after doing this like five or six times, I, the dream was, I was on like a university, like a college university, like park or something. And I saw all these people moving and I became conscious and I was like, I'm going to do one of my sex rampages. Everyone in the dream stopped and looked at me like they did in the movie Inception. And the vibe was, and I'm getting goosebumps again. Every time I feel into this, I get goosebumps. The vibe was, you're not supposed to be here. What you're doing is wrong. And it scared the fuck out of me. And I stopped trying to lucid dream. And so the thing here is when you dream, your unconscious mind is trying to teach you things that your conscious mind can't see or won't accept. And that if you lucid dream, you're bringing your ego into that space and it can quote unquote corrupt that space. That's at least my personal experience. So I, I stopped trying to lucid dream. And in the last two or three years, whenever I have a lucid dream, it's always by accident. And every time my first instinct is to start fucking some beautiful woman and I have to stop it. And then I ask the dream, what are you trying to show me? And the dream fucking like it's giving me goosebumps now every time i do wow. that the dream transforms in this really powerful and potent way where it makes it an even more significant dream because it feels like i'm doing what i'm supposed to do which mm -hmm. is get out of your own fucking way and genuinely ask what it's trying to teach you so that sleeping technique is a way to remember your dreams but the caveat there is don't bring your egoic desires into the dream space before you've earned the right to be in that space. And I think you earn the right to be conscious in that space by having the proper humble disposition that like to take a step back, all of the shit that we've been talking about implies that your conscious mind is this itty bitty thing in the grand totality of what your psyche is. Your Carl Jung has a great quote and it's something like if the psyche, if the unconscious could be, could be personified as a personality, it would be millions of years old. 
It is both male and female. It's lived every type of life. It's been a mother and a father, a son and a daughter, an uncle and an aunt, a witch, a, a general, a king, a queen. It's lived every type of life. And it knows death and rebirth and the cycles of nature and the like grief of death and the afterlife. Like it knows all of this. And it dreams you and that it's trying to communicate with you when you dream. And it's also the thing that is communicating with you through psychedelic experiences. And it's a God, like it's, it's the human God. It's the collective like evolutionary understanding of what it means to be this type of organism on this type of planet. And my intuition is bow to it. It seems so interesting to me that we're not taught more about this stuff. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, we all go to sleep. We all right. dream. Why aren't we taught? Why aren't we? Why haven't we been taught this stuff? Yeah, like, why isn't this a priority? Dreams were dismissed as nothing all through my college years studying cognitive psychology. And the people who dismissed it were geniuses. They were incredibly intelligent. Mm. But it's the type of intelligence that Western culture creates, which is all brain, no body. Right. And dreams are almost like the essence of the body. And like, like one of the things that stupefies me whenever I really feel into it is there is something inside of me that is so powerful that it can effortlessly create worlds that are so real that my batting average of being able to figure out that it's a dream over the course of hundreds of thousands of attempts is like 0.0001 and that these worlds that are effortlessly created by something in me teach me things that I didn't know I knew. Like that is one of the most existentially stupefying aspects of daily reality that we just like, it's like a fish in water, not recognizing that it's in the ocean. You know, like it's so close to us since the moment we're conscious that we just don't even realize that there's an ocean. We just fucking swim and shit. Oh, man. So much there. <laughs> I just got to sit with that for a sec. Bro, man, I am so grateful for the wisdom that you bring to the world. You know, I'm, it's, it's a real treat to hear this because it's it's tough to get this kind of information deciphered in a way that's uh, digestible and you do a great job of it man i've said it before i'll say it again and so much gold in this conversation and there's one more thing i would like to you know to wrap things up <laughs> with i mean we could talk about this all day yeah is in the state of this chaotic world that we're in right now, we're living every, you know, from the leaders top down is trauma, right? If you could give some advice for somebody listening to this at this point in time in our world to navigate through this chaos and the adversity and the trauma, whatever they're going through, what advice would you give to them? The thing that most guides me is the advice that Maharaji gave Ram Dass, which has been articulated in a different way by Jordan Peterson. And it's tell the truth and love people. 
one of the things that is the most anchoring belief for me is that if I speak and act my truth to the best ability that I know and feel, whatever is the outcome is the best possible thing that can happen. And that has anchored me for since I was exposed to the idea about five years ago. So that's how to orient inside of you is how can I connect to my truth? How do we hold on? I want to just pause that for one sec. Okay. How do we, for somebody that doesn't know what their truth is, can you elaborate on Mm -hmm. being in truth? What is that? Yeah. So the first, this is like, if you really knew how to do this, you'd be enlightened. So I, I appreciate you asking, like, how do you actually do this? Step one is make the commitment to yourself not to say things that you know are lies. Start there. That's something we can all do. Like if you take stock of how you've navigated the last week, how many times have you said something that you know and that you knew in the moment you said it wasn't truth. And there's a whole interesting thing here about like, there's different types of lies. Like there's lies by omission, which is you, you can feel that there's something like if I was completely in integrity, I would actually say something here, but I'm not going to say it. That's a type of lie. When you purposefully say a part of something to move the conversation away from something you're afraid of, I would say that that's a type of lie. One of the ones that I still do, like I'm, I'm, I'm proud of how I don't say things that I know are not true, but something I still do is I exaggerate almost every day. It's so intuitive. Like if I know that I worked for four hours, but I'm talking to someone at the end of the day, I I'll, I'll say five hours and I catch myself. I'm like, dude, (laughs) stop that shit. When I don't feel safe in a conversation, I will lie by omission. You know, I'm like tricking myself. Like I'm not actually lying, but I'm definitely not saying that thing that I'm afraid to say. And the more that you can at least start with that first premise of do not say things that you know are not true. It starts to do something. It, it starts to like clean you out in this interesting way. And then the next step is say things that I am afraid to say that I know are true. Like one of the things to feel into is like, you can start with your family. If your family was a, was like a constellation, there is something that you're not saying to basically everyone in your family that you know is true, that you're afraid to say. That's basically true for every human on this fucking planet. The way your life would change if you said those things in compassion and in love, like that's a master course that could last you for the next 20 years that could radically improve the psychological situation of everyone in your family. And then you could feel into your friendships, your lovers, the people you work with, you know, what are the things that you know need to be said that aren't being said? Another example is don't say something about someone that you wouldn't say to them. Like that fucking, that cuts out so much shitty energy in your life. And if someone is saying something to you about someone that you know they wouldn't say to them, meet it with love, but stop it. You know, be like, 
I can feel that this is feeling almost like gossip inside of me. And I just wanted to check in. Is this something that you've said to them or you would say to them? And if they, you know, it's like their brain will break for a moment or they'll start to get flustered or they might get defensive. And so there's an art to being compassionate about it. But if the answer is no, respectfully ask, you know, as a way of me respecting myself, I would like us not to talk about this. That is a fucking game changer. So there's, but it, it doesn't need to be complicated. Yeah. If you're, it's why I think journaling is so important. But if you create a space in your life where you're speaking to yourself, honestly, and you know that you can come back to this page and just tell the truth to yourself, that, that creates a bastion inside of you that you can start to like anchor into that will start to emanate out further. So the inward beginning place is cultivating this commitment to speak and act the truth. The larger context that I think is incredibly important for where we're at right now in our culture is it's kind of an evolutionary lens, but we have evolved as tribal beings to have about half of the tribe basically be open to the idea of the archetype of the stranger. And then we have half of the tribe that's evolved to be resistance or to be resistant or closed to the archetype of the stranger. Because one of the things to feel into is a long time ago, one of the most important events for a tribe was the moment in it encountered a stranger, like another human. Because that stranger could either be like the beginning of a war party or the opportunity to a new technology or to a new resource or to a new psycho technology that can improve everyone's lives. And it's also the harbinger of disease. It could potentially be bringing a new disease. And so really deeply anchored inside of us is this disposition to either be open to the other or to be resistant to the other. And neither is right without the balance of the other. And there's a technical and, and scientifically supported argument for this that we don't have time to get into, but that breaks down into these political parties in every civilization that's ever existed that we're aware of there's been and the the names and the details have changed but fundamentally there's half that's open to the idea of the archetypical other and there's half that's resistant to the idea of the archetypical other and in our culture the left would be open to and the right would be resistant to and there's evolutionarily adaptive reasons for both and the tribes that survived are the ones that could maintain the tension of that balance. Mm. And so in our culture, the people who don't agree with you, they are not the enemy. We are at an interesting time in our evolutionary history where there is no longer more physical space to be discovered. We are a global tribe, whether or not we like it. And our evolutionary instincts are to not, our evolutionary instincts are to play what's called zero sum game dynamics against other tribes. And it's a whole technical argument that I'm not going to get into, but essentially from the inside, start with truth. And when you meet people out there that you don't agree with, if you could do the thought experiment of these are the other half of my tribe 
that if I don't know how to listen to and integrate, we're going to destroy ourselves. Like, because our culture, if left unchecked, is going to change the environment to the point where our grandchildren's grandchildren will not be able to drink water. That's almost, that to me seems like a fact, and I might be wrong. But if left unchecked, that's where we're moving. Plus, there's weapons of mass destruction that exist. So if one part of the tribe gets angry enough at some other part of the tribe, we could fucking end human life on the planet with nuclear holocaust. That's real. And that's been real for like 50 years, but we've just gotten numb to it. And then also the impending coming of AI and that event horizon being completely unknowable. We have real 100% potentially catastrophic risks coming towards us. And that if we can't learn how to cooperate, which is fundamentally, you and I disagree, but can we at least, at least disagree enough in a way where we can agree on an action to take towards one of these problems? If we don't figure this out, I don't think my grandchildren's grandchildren are going to have a planet that they can live on. And so one of the things I'm deeply committed to with the work that I'm doing is how can we cultivate the ability to communicate beyond this divide that is so big and so polarizing so that we can have meaningful conversations that can allow my grandchildren's grandchildren to have a planet. And so seeing the other as the other half of my tribe and how can I integrate them and understand them as opposed to how can I shame them or attack them or judge them if not figured out, I don't think that we have a future in a couple of generations. Well said. I completely agree with you, man. And it's so easy for us to get so emotional and attack everybody for believing different things, especially on social media, man. It's a real, mm. it's a real weapon, you know? One like this is a side note, but social media is ran by algorithms that have been programmed to optimize keeping you on site longer. These algorithms are exponentially more powerful than the chess computer that we created four decades ago to play the grandmaster at the time at chess, and it beat the grandmaster. We are playing against a computer that's exponentially more powerful than that. We are not trained grandmasters at managing our attention. We don't know that we're playing against this computer and what the algorithms have figured out. They're not evil, but what they have figured out because their optimizing function is to keep you on site longest is that if the monkey is afraid or angry, the monkey will stay on. And so everyone is in their own echo chamber of anything that you interact with anything that you like, anything that you share, anything that you stop the scroll and just look at, you're telling the algorithm what to give back to you. And so if you believe that there's a cabal of child raping and eating priests that span generations that worship a God, Moloch, you get that feedback to you, that that's the only thing that's happening. If you believe that that cops are fundamentally racist and are seeking to kill you because you're not white. And that's what you click on. You're, you're seeing more of that. If you believe that the Hillary Clinton is a part of a pedophilia ring or whatever the thing is, you get more of that. 
And it starts to feel, if you don't have epistemological rigor, that that is the entire world. But you've actually been guided into the most niche, niche of a niche of the internet, where you're only getting back the things that scare you or anger you the most. And so just recognizing social media is the reason you and I met. So there's a tremendous power if used responsibly. But social media, if used unconsciously, is going to make the world feel like the most angry, angering, and terrifying place that's ever existed. Well said. Thank you, brother. Man, thank you. This is so much fun. I love, I love this. And so much value in there. Brother, let's, for everybody that wants to check more out what you got going on, Myths That Make Us podcast, yep. your journal course, what's the exact name of it? And we'll link it in the show notes yeah. just to give people a little bit of a preview. Yeah. So I have two. The intro one is called Make Your Myth. And the little bit more advanced one is called The Dharma Journal. And you can find both at erigazzi.com. And I have a weekly newsletter that I send out most weeks, depending on how busy I am, that you can get on at erigazzi.com. And my Instagram is also my name. And you've also been on Aubrey's podcast lots. A recent one was awesome too. And I highly Thank recommend you. checking that out. I've done lots, like 13. Yeah, <laughs> lots of good information. You know, you guys listening out there, Eric's a great resource for real truth and just kind of having a better understanding of yourself. So check them out. And yeah, brother, thanks so much. Thank you, brother. Thanks, everybody.